Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Okay, back there. <coughs> so nice on these evenings to go from um, the turbulence of making dinner, coming back here, chanting, practicing asana together, and uh, one of the wonderful uh, parts of practicing asana was that we get to stretch our breath and the mind and our favorite holding patterns and neuroses into new patterns. And uh, that practice helps wake up the intelligence of the body. And then um, we sit together and then all of that movement slowly starts to settle. And it's interesting doing sitting practice after asana practice because there's some stability there. Nervous system can get grounded. So you can feel your center of gravity. (laughs) And um, this movement back and forth between uh, Stillness and action has always been the heart of every philosophy. Even if you read the Bhagavad Gita, you read the Sankhya Karika, Ishvara Krishna, you read the Buddha's teaching, and um, you find this tension between stillness and movement. And, um, or in the Taoist tradition, the greatest teachings on this, how to find movement in the heart of stillness, stillness in the heart of movement. And it's like that in the sitting posture where the posture gets very, very still, and then what you notice is everything left that's moving. The breath, the mind, sound, and so on but then you look really, really deeply into what's moving, and you find that at the heart of that is also stillness. It's really interesting. Unless you're thinking about something. Um, I had this experience today, um, because today's Remembrance Day, 
and I was at the dentist this morning, which is not far from Queen's Park, and I could hear the explosions. first couple of them I couldn't remember. I was, oh, yeah. And, um, and so my mind filled up with the talk I was going to give tonight, um, which had very much to do with my pacifist, anarchist, anti-war um, perspective. And um, I had so many good quotes that were just showing up that I wanted to read, and many of them I know off by heart. Some of my favorite poems would work perfect if I could talk to you about um, war. Because um, one of the things that we arrive at paradoxically in this practice is war. You start sitting still and you start seeing how your actions have an effect. One of the things we talked about last week was that one of the uh, interesting things that happens in this practice in relationship to ethics is we realize that you can't ever have a clean moral conscience because there's always residue when you take an action. And the action can be so subtle that it's even your perception. So in one moment of perception, you're conditioning what you're perceiving, and that's considered on the outside stillness, but internally that's a moment of action. See? So you're always in karma. So karma isn't so much what you do, but it's just what you are. So it's the seeds that you plant, but that's what you are. You're the fruition of so many other conditions of planted seeds that's beyond your comprehension. So then you see that the kind of action you you take in any given moment um, really has an effect. And um, then you start to see the way that you have an internal war going on inside you and how that manifests outside of you. And this was the talk I was going to give. It was all about the way that uh, we cause violence for ourselves and in our relationships and that one of the best things we can do on Remembrance Day is to literally remember ourselves, to sit still, and to try and find the unity where these discursive, extroverted um, energies that usually are motivated by greed, by hatred, or by confusion come to fruition. There's the talk. But then I got on my bicycle. And I rode my bike along by Queen's Park. And I started looking at all the faces of the people who were leaving the ceremonies and uh, very old people walking slowly. Uh, And um, I saw somebody fall. When was the last time you've seen an elderly person fall? It's very hard to, to watch another human being fall. And um, they were dressed up, you know. Obviously, they had had some kind of military career. 
I don't know how to read all the badges. And um, this whole talk that I imagined giving instantly just, I don't know where it went. And suddenly there's an actual person there. A person who's uh, been through something that I've never been through. And one of the first feelings that arose in me was um, awareness of this person's courage. That sometimes we get a political ideal. We're anti-war. Okay? So I don't want people going to Afghanistan, people going to Iraq, under any situation. And then you vote. You vote so that the prime minister uh, that you vote in doesn't support the war. Or you're for the war. You want Canadian troops to be there doing peacekeeping. I was very moved by Stéphane Dion. I, w- I was not so sold on the Liberal Party. And then Stéphane Dion talked about going to Afghanistan and really looking around and feeling in his heart, he said, that we were making a difference. That somehow we were helping. And that's why he didn't want to bring the troops home immediately. He felt that he wanted it to be curtailed, kind of slow movement home. because he really. Felt. And I was so moved, not by his position, but the fact that his position changed. That he changed positions. That he actually looked around and it affected him in some way. And most of us, we don't look around. We get caught in a viewpoint, which we've talked about for two months now, and we're blinded by our belief system. And then so we can't look around. And yet, these people who go to war, they come back to your neighborhood. And whether you believe in the war or you don't believe in war, it makes no difference. Because that person is your neighbor. Actually, that person is you. This is the core teaching of yoga. Tatvam asi. I am that. That is me. That is you. That person is you. And so they come home from war, and their work secures this life for you, in part. The World Trade Center's are not just tall buildings. The World Trade Centers are the residue of your activity every day. You know, I bet you there's only one, what did they say, six, six, six degrees of separation. I bet you there's one degree of separation between what you did in the last two hours and the World Trade Centers. If you handle money, if you go to a bank, if you write a check, if you drive, if you use cement, if you use any natural resource, somehow that flows back through the World Trade Centers. So, there's not a lot of degrees of separation. You can see the karma very clearly if you can drop your perspective. Oh, that's so hard to do. So easy to talk about. I almost gave a talk about it tonight. When my grandmother was dying, I've had the good fortune, the privilege in some way, to uh, 
be present with quite a few of my family members when they've died. And one of the people was my grandmother. Um, when she was dying, in the last half an hour before she died, um, she didn't want to die. And so she made fists. And her hands were so tight, the doctors could not even undo her fingers. And they were completely white, totally numb. And um, the thing that's interesting about being with someone when they die is physiologically, you have to let go. You have to let go. Death is not something that gets taken from you. Death is actually an amazing opportunity for generosity. Death is a moment where you, you just give it away. And it's interesting because psychologically you might not be there. But physiologically, um, it has to happen. And the nurse came in, and the nurse, uh, at, and, and this was at um, Baycrest on Bathurst Street. And uh, the nurse knew my grandmother, knew she had been through the Holocaust, knew she had escaped from a concentration camp. And she said um, that um, somehow... She's going to let all that go. This was 30 minutes before she was going to pass away. And um, then about one minute before she passed away, her exhale started getting very, very long. And then she threw up. And she threw up blood all over me, over the bed, over herself, over the whole room. And I didn't even notice her anymore because I... I was just, it was a very strange feeling to have somebody else's blood in this way on your skin. And um, and then her fingers let go. And she, she died. And um, I remember um, this real sense of relief for her, for her hands, for her fingers. I kept looking at her fingers like, Oh, they finally let go a little bit, you know. And um, this is interesting if you know people who've been through war, that um, it is so hard to heal when you see a lot of violence, when you see people being killed, or if you've killed people. What it's like, I've never killed anybody, but I can imagine, I think, what it must be like if you're a young person and you go to war and you kill somebody and then you come back to your wife and your kids or your friends and you've had this experience that um, automatically creates separation. Right? And unfortunately the separation happens with the ones you love because it's hard for someone else to sit with you and say they really know your experience. And um, war, no matter how you cut it, is hell. It's a hell realm. War is hell. And it's important that we pay attention to the effect of our actions in the day so we're not contributing to war in all of its manifestation. But at the same time, finding a place where we can find the human people both in the side of the perpetrator 
and the victim. So we can even drop those kind of categories. And they say in trauma that the people who get traumatized the most in conflict are the witnesses. Not necessarily the person who gets hit by the car, but the person who watches it happen. Not necessarily the person who shoots a gun, but the person who watches the gun being shot. The person who witnesses often gets the most traumatized. So all of us are witnesses of war. And it may not be firsthand, but we also may not be looking. You see, today it took me a long time to to enter in to the end of this ritual of Remembrance Day and actually pay attention. Because my mind was so filled with my viewpoint, which I think is so flexible, but actually uh, somebody falling, the sound of these explosions, the uniforms, faces, the eyes, remembering my grandmother, It took all this for my viewpoint to soften. Bernie Glassman. Over the years, the term bearing witness has become very meaningful for me. The sixth patriarch, Hui Neng, defined practice as the state of mind in which there's no separation between subject and object. No space between I and thou, you and me, up and down, right and wrong. I call this awareness bearing witness. There's probably no one who bears witness to all of life. Each of us denies something. There are some aspects of my life which I try to separate, to distance myself. We also become a society that denies certain aspects of itself. Homelessness. AIDS, forms of practice in which there are no separation between subject and object, allow us to bear witness to all of life as it is this very moment. Eliminate why from our lives and we're bearing witness. I'll say that sentence again. Eliminate why from our lives and we're bearing witness. When I bear witness, I open to what, it, to what is, and that's how healing begins. That's how healing begins. One of the core um, byproducts of this practice is the ability to bear witness. So we're learning a technique so that when patterns of sensation that seem unbearable begin to show up, we can cultivate patience and impeccable attentiveness. And then we watch the stories we create, the viewpoints we cling to, the memories that we we give importance, the feelings we like to invest in. And then we see that it's too easy, it's too easy to come up with a viewpoint to explain everything by going for the why. Why is this happening to me? But when you go down to New Orleans after the devastation there 
and there is somebody staring at you like you saw the pictures the first day after the floods of an African-American man with his little boy. And you could just see in their eyes that they had nowhere to go. And when you look into their eyes, you don't ask why. You don't ask if there's a God and if God did this or didn't do this or how can a God do that, how can a God cause this. That's not what that person needs. What that person needs is your eyes and a blanket and a piece of bread and an apple and some place to find a soft place for their head to rest. They don't need a why. And I felt today going to the um, uh, driving by this ceremony that I was showing up with why, a lot of why, why we go to war, why we keep creating war for ourselves, why we fight, um, and it obscures the possibility of bearing witness. So bearing witness means um, that you're giving up fixed ideas about yourself and others. And that's the heart of this practice. Because once you can bear witness, you've done 50% of the practice. And the next 50% is taking loving action. Karma. Taking action. It's the well-known Dante quote that there is a place reserved in hell for those who remain passive in times of crisis. So remaining passive also is a form of violence. And I think some of us sometimes in our meditative quietude can hide behind the position of no position and not do anything. Or you hear this a lot, unfortunately, in meditation communities, is that you have to put in a certain number of years on your cushion before you can really take action in the world. And this is not right. You see, taking action in the world and stillness are parallel and synchronistic. That They work together. And that's why some of the core teachings in the yoga and Buddhist traditions begin with ethics. This notion that if you really want to change, you start with noticing the consequences of your actions. How many people go into psychotherapy who say that they really want to change and then they never really change? How many of you have addictions that you know so much about that you really want to change, but you've never done anything. And you know why you don't do anything, because the effect is not so intense in your own life yet. Okay, But that's missing karma entirely. What about the effect with your friends? You think they don't see it? What about the effect on the fish? They need your energy right now. Does this make sense? Yeah. So this is the motivation. 
Because a lot of the times we just don't see the effect. And so a good therapist is trying to help their patients see the effect of their actions. And a good therapist who's done the leading edge 150 hour training program um, is also helping those people see the effect of their actions right now, in this moment. Not down the road or how it's affected you in the past, but now, look, here we are together and you can't be here. So Remembrance Day. So many people who made decisions to go and to fight and how easy it is to say, oh, you know, they, they made the wrong decision. Or how easy it is to say, oh, they really did the right thing. <coughs> it's not so simple, you see. And so part of our practice on Remembrance Day is to bear witness to the complexity of war. And that's why I've always been very moved by Patanjali's first teaching in the Yoga Sutra, which is ahimsa, non-violence, not killing, not injuring. Ham is where we get the English word uh, harm. So ahimsa means not causing harm. He doesn't teach peace. It's too naive. It's too idealistic to teach peace. He's teaching non-harm, which presupposes that one of the uh, inevitable effects of your activity is going to be harm. So because you begin with violence, you practice non-violence in body, speech, and mind. And you're doing it in this practice, is that you notice where maybe there's some skillfulness starting in the meditation practice and where there is total unskillfulness, you know. You sit there and you're just totally spaced out, replaying whatever you replay. Actually, it's not really that different for everybody. (laughs) There's nothing like sitting in a group with other people when the question period starts and just hearing your own questions being asked by other people. So, are there any questions or thoughts, observations? What's, what's arising for you? Um, dumb questions? Really idiotic comments <coughs> from shy people? I'd like to make a comment just from what you spoke about mm-hmm. coming out on University or Queen's Park there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the hockey game Saturday night, mm-hmm. and they had uh, the old timers come out because they were having the old timers game on Sunday. Mm-hmm. 
And just after all the old timers came out, they brought out war veterans. Mm -hmm. So a man from World War II, mm -hmm. a private, and he walked out on his walker on, mm -hmm. onto the carpets and the ice, and man in a wheelchair. And uh, instantly, I started to question it, you know, because mm -hmm. they're raising less we forget. I'm like, oh, we've forgotten, and all this stuff about war. Then uh, just before we started singing the national anthem, mm -hmm. a man behind me said, oh, is this a fucking hockey game? Mm. And it shook me on my perception. I'm like, what did he say? And then I looked up, and they had the camera on the man in the wheelchair, and he was crying mm. as the national anthem went on. And it just, I was just like taken apart. I was like, what about them? You know? mm. And it was just the moments just opened right up yeah. to what actually it means. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Else? I'd like to comment on not the war aspect, but in the uh, practice. When you pointed out your thoughts, um, the difference between your thoughts and no thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I found myself literally go from, like, my whole body was moving like this. Mm -hmm. And I was tight and I was thinking about something. Mm -hmm. And then when you said that, I just came back and it was solidly on the breath mm -hmm. for so long and I thought it's amazing how you can sit and have two completely different experiences mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't usually notice it when I'm sitting by myself, mm -hmm. but it, because it was guided, it was like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. And then coming back to it. Mm -hmm. So that's just interesting. Yeah. And po it just, it's possible, it makes the possibilities so it's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes these techniques seem like two different techniques that you're doing at once. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, like at the beginning, it feels like mindfulness of sound is a different meditation technique than mindfulness of breathing. But then you start to see, when you really drop into it, that um, the breath is happening and that the feeling of breathing is because the body is receptive to breathing. Not following sound happens when the ears are receptive to sound. Um, stillness of the gaze happens when the gaze is, when the eyes are still. You see, so that actually it's all the same technique. Mm -hmm. It's just a different sense organ, mm -hmm. and the and the technique is receptivity. And um, if you're in the mindfulness year-long training program then you know that actually what happens is you build and you keep adding sense organs. So that then you start watching more and more and more and more and more from this place of stillness, opening up to it. And if you're in the intensive last week, then you know that this is called pratyahara, which means counter-grabbing. Not the best one. <laughs> Chipar translates as, as uncoupling. And it's when the sense organs are not going after sense objects. And um, the mind is a sense organ, and it goes after, after thinking. It goes after good stories. Or actually bad stories, too. <laughs> actually, mostly bad stories. <laughs> Nothing like a bad story to keep myself away from myself. Someone else? What, uh...
comes to mind. Is it easy to confuse distraction with what you just said? The fact that you're starting to add more and open up more, uh-huh. and then different things start showing up. So mm-hmm. there are moments where you're very aware of the breath, and then you're aware of certain thoughts, and then you're aware of certain emotions, mm-hmm. and they keep dancing and playing around. Mm-hmm. And can I? I can't. Sometimes I feel that. I can watch it from a very still point, mm-hmm. but sometimes something feels counterintuitive mm-hmm. from what I'm doing. It's almost like I feel, oh, eh, maybe too many things, I should just go back to the breath, and I become very strict about counting breaths, because this is too mm-hmm. many things at the same time. So... Yeah. Um. <laughs> One of the things we touched on last week, and I want to get back to it in future weeks, is that um, one of the Buddha's teachings in the refrain at the end of each training on mindfulness is that you notice something... Does somebody remember? Sarah? Yeah. Um, notice something that's just knowledge and understanding uh-huh. to establish mindfulness mm-hmm. yeah that means when you're noticing something there's just enough noticing to establish mindfulness mm-hmm. and mindfulness is characterized by the absence of commentary, commentary. Mm-hmm. okay this is a really important technique mm-hmm. so that when you're noticing thinking, the, the label that says, oh, distraction, let's say, mm-hmm. is just like an inhale. And on the exhale, it goes away. So it's like just enough mm-hmm. language to get you oriented, and then you come back to the object. But I think what you're describing is like where labeling sometimes has too much power, and then it's like categorizing. Mm. And it will make you crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going crazy? I think so. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I will. Yeah. Anybody who spent time around uh, people who are psychotic, um, you know that actually this is like one of the common first um, uh, movements in a psychotic break like too much labeling sometimes it appears as like counting counting, counting, counting and it just becomes totally overwhelming counting everything sure none of you have never (laughs) but yeah it's it's kind of the same thing though right it's like it's too compulsive you see it's like labeling so there has to be kind of a relaxed ease in the process so that when there's something that's recurring, there's just enough understanding that you can bring some um, mindfulness to it. 
And that means that you're breathing and noticing or feeling what's there, but there's not a story about it. It's just what's there. Or not an interruption. Not so much interruption. Yeah. 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 Mm. No big commercial breaks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and how do you work with this obsessiveness of, you know, when you're really noticing your labeling? And, okay, so you try to relax. Mm-hmm. Well, don't try to relax. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, I know. I remember learning this early uh, in, um, I once tried to do a yoga teacher training, it didn't last very long, mm-hmm. but um, one, of the thing, one of the things I learned once was um, when you're instructing people to relax um, in Shavasana, and you're, you're, the language you use shouldn't have any doing in it. So if you say to someone, relax your tongue, they're going to get stressed out. Okay? Or you could say, just give the tongue some space. And then, like, the tongue just relaxes. Like, you don't know what to do. You see? But you say, like, try and relax your legs. Then there's an ideal that, like, the legs should be relaxed, and then you're, like, trying to figure out how to do it. Too much subject-object. So, just, like... You're, you're touching sound, or the sound's touching you, the breath's touching. They're all just coming together, feeling that process. The breath is happening, sounds are happening. And then once in a while, really strong aversions come up, or strong thoughts, or recurring stories. But you're also just touching those with awareness, just touching those every time they show up. And every time you touch it, you take the power out of that. Because you're not investing in it. Yeah. And if there's not a lot of relaxation or ease, and there's a lot of kind of like labeling, notice that. And then it can't do it. But you don't notice it with the obsessive mind. Because yeah. then it's like, I'm obsessed about getting rid of this obsession. <laughs> <laughs> and then it like becomes like compulsive. Like, I've got to get rid of this. And uh, then it doesn't work. I think what, what's going on is that there are certain recurring thoughts that I haven't had in a very long time. And mm-hmm. some, they are yeah. appearing again. And I think mm-hmm. I'm getting, I'm contracting around them because yeah. they seem old and I thought I, they yeah. And then they're back again with yeah. punch, you know? And, yeah. then, and so mm-hmm. I think the obsession is coming from there. Like, yeah. where are they yeah. there? Why are they? What? Why? why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why is this? Whenever there's a why, there has to be a me. Yeah. It's always like, why is this happening? <laughs> and then uh, it's kind of convenient for the storyteller. Yeah. Just imagine there's like some person in there, okay? You know, um, they've never been out of there. They're always in there. They're like behind your kneecap somewhere. And their job is just to turn whatever's happening in your life into a story about you. And when you die, um, they give up. The problem is, is that when you're happy, they also have given up. 
But then when you're happy, they try and figure out a way to wreck it. So they can come back in and think that the happiness is because of them. And um, the thing they're most terrified about, aside from Darwin, is (laughs) that um, they're going to be out of a job. Because they're like actually not so useful. And the more you do the sitting practice, the more they realize that they're not helpful. And then um, they freak out because they need to keep their job because all they do is give commentary. That's their job. And, um, you know, you think the baseball commentators are annoying, but (laughs) it's like you're doing that all day long, like with less skill. (laughs) And like bad accent. So it knows it's out of a job. So it freaks out, tries to find a way to keep the job. And that's why you need to practice with other people. Because as you practice, the commentator is going to hide out somewhere to pretend that you're spiritual and that it's not really a big deal. And then it's going to come some other way and try and superimpose itself again on the experience. And uh, this is called spiritual practice. And uh, it's a great sport. Not recommended, though, for commentators. (laughs) Or actually recommended for commentators. Does this make sense to you? A little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be aware of the way you're being aware. So you're bringing mindfulness to the quality of the focus. Because otherwise, there isn't awareness of the labeling. There's labeling the labeling. And you can create so many commentators in your legs that there can be like a commentary about a commentary about a commentary about a commentary. And if you actually say it out loud while you're doing it, you can get a PhD for that. <laughs> That's what a PhD is, actually. It's, it's being able to give a commentary about someone else's commentary about a commentary. And you don't even have to do any practice. People are like getting PhDs in yoga who, who don't do any practice. Actually, some of the best scholars, even Buddha scholars, like they wouldn't even recognize a cushion. He showed them a cushion. Don't, I don't know. Is that mentioned in the commentary somewhere? <laughs> How did we get onto this? It's supposed to be serious tonight. Okay. Any last commentaries? If there's somebody who you've known in your life who has um, um, gone to war uh, and not come back, gone to fight and come back, Maybe he has gone to fight and has come back injured. Somebody you know, um, then stand up. So bring the legs together and let the arms relax. And for everybody else, 
bring the palms to rest on the thighs. We'll all let our eyes close. Relax your body. The body rests in its natural state. Breathe into the chest. And if you're standing, let your chest soften. So the breath is easy to find there. standing and there's a particular person that comes to mind, bring them right into your heart, breathing in there, and relax into that. Not so much commentary. Just a feeling, an image, literally a remembering.
Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. Awaken. Do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from war. May all beings be safe and free from war. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Namaste. Thank you. Namaste.